Today on episode number 489 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Teaching with Artificial Intelligence, with Lindsay Dukopoulos. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Lindsay Dukopoulos. She's the Associate Director for Educational Development at the Biggio Center for the Enhancement of Teaching and Learning at Auburn University. She's passionate about building community around teaching and learning so that all faculty feel supported and empowered to innovate and inspire, building capacity for faculty to achieve our teaching and learning goals in rewarding and sustainable ways, and building dignity around the profession of teaching. Lindsay Dukopoulos, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. And I am so excited to be here as well. Thank you for the invitation to engage in this fascinating artificial intelligence course, which for listeners, spoiler alert, we have linked to in the show notes, and we'll be talking about a lot. We've had so many episodes about this topic and even more already scheduled. This was the hardest thing about interviewing you, figuring out what we were going to talk about. (laughs) So I'm going to (laughs) start with a super easy question, I say, full of all of the sarcasm I can present to you. What is learning, Lindsay? Yeah, I think learning, I mean, essentially learning is a change in your brain. And I think it's important to emphasize that there are physical changes that show up if you have sophisticated enough technology that shows new dendrites and things like that. I think it's easy to sort of gloss over teaching and learning as sort of one happens and ergo the other happens. But I like, you know, the definitions of learning that really focus on the fact that learning is something that students do. It's not something done to students. And I think when we're we're getting at the heart of teaching and learning, especially in this age of AI, the real concern is that with all of these fancy new tools that generate outputs, that resemble or, you know, in the past have been the proxy for whether or not learning had happened, we're really starting to get into this idea that learning is exceptionally difficult to really assess in a meaningful way at scale. And so I think that this is really pulling out and making apparent that for a long time, higher ed has focused on what somebody should be able to do if they have learned rather than the process of learning itself. I I love the way you're framing that, how difficult it is. Could we even say impossible to measure at scale? What ways, when we think about just down to an N of one, what what kinds of learning tend to be relatively easy to measure versus the other types of learning that many have come on this podcast before and argued those things are impossible to measure? So what what ways might you sort or group or think about the kind of learning that is easier to measure as you're looking at an individual and the kind of learning that becomes harder to gauge? 
You know, I like going back to Bloom's work, um, Edward Bloom from the 1950s. He's given us, of course, the taxonomy that we're all, well, most folks in in higher ed and those who, who work with faculty are familiar with, which is the taxonomy of cognitive learning. So it starts with the baseline is at the very minimum, I have to remember. <laughs> this is, and I think, you know, when we think about knowing people's names, that's a good little proxy for, for the learning process. Like, I know, I know that person. Their name starts with a C. I know I can see where they sit in my classroom. There's a lot of things that show that we're on the pathway to learning maybe who our students are or their names, but we're not quite there yet. So at the lower level, you understand, I, I, I remember that face, and then you recall their name. And then perhaps you remember them because of what they've produced in your class or the interactions up to the highest levels of knowing a person or learning a person, which are, you know, you really connect, understand, predict what they're able to say. And then there's other kinds of learning, though. And I think Bloom's work, he had um, the three domains of learning. There's cognitive learning, there's psychomotor learning, so your physical kind of skills and abilities. Then there's that third domain of affective learning. And I think that that's a piece where we're going to see, hopefully, a lot more movement and traction about the importance of the fact that people have to care, they have to engage, they have to feel these senses of belonging and safety before they're willing to risk in different ways, you know, the kinds of things that it takes to change your mind about things. And I feel like that's the area where when we're talking about AI tools, I'm hopeful that they can help us more quickly get to those types of learning experiences. And I think they're forcing them in a lot of ways. So now that we can't we can't trust that our students are not going to use AI tools to create content. How do we help motivate them in a way to care that that's something they're doing or not, you know, missing the opportunity for doing this really deep thinking that leads to, to the writing and vice versa. I come from a writing background, so I'm always thinking about writing as thinking and thinking as writing. Mm-hmm. But writing is also a tool. It's something that the more quickly we can sort of output it the more we can focus on other things. So I'm very interested in both of those kinds of dimensions. These three domains that you just talked about, I I touched on those as recently as last evening. And I'm going to hearken back and I'll put this in the show notes to an episode that I did with Betsy Berry. And she does the workload calculator. I don't know if she's, Lindsay's nodding her head. She's familiar with the workload calculator. (laughs) From Rice University. Yeah. And I've talked about. I love that tool. Yeah. And I think it started at Wake Forest and then went to Rice. Or maybe I have it, I have met, I think I have it reversed. It started at Rice and then moved to Wake Forest or some different versions. But anyway, I, I, I talk about often that if I go back and revisit that calculator, I almost a hundred percent of the time will realize I have underestimated how long it will take a student to do things. And in terms of writing as thinking, thinking as writing, for me, it's not always writing, but whatever that assessment is, I often, I mean, close to a hundred percent of the time that assessment is whatever that is as a form of learning and then as a form of assessment and they just dance with each other and, and smaller stakes assignments. But so I was sitting with a group of people. I tend to often do what I jokingly call after parties. And during that time, instead of thinking as an individualistic thing, we'll look at the assignments that are coming up and we might tackle one or two of them together and work on them. And so this week it was looking, we're building up to a personal mission 
mission statement in a personal leadership and productivity class that I'm teaching. And so the assignment to me felt so easy. Go and use some kind of mind map software or they were welcome to hand draw something. It didn't matter to me if it was digital or analog. And then think of five roles that you play in your life. And this is all off the reading we've been doing the last two weeks and everything. And some kind of an image that's representative of that. And then write a goal, a smart goal that's associated with it. And one of the young men stayed afterward. We ended up having this whole conversation and I saw these cognitive things, the psychomotor, maybe I'm stretching it, but in terms of actually using the technology he had wanted to use a tool or whatever, and then the affective learning, which all of those were getting potentially ignited in this particular assignment. And just all of the ways that I got to hear him run into trouble. So he could only think of two roles. And then he said something about this. He really likes to do these esports, and he does game. He competes, and I was thinking, like, who has told you that that's wrong? <laughs> that that's not the <laughs> right answer I was looking for. How could I author your life for you and tell you that this thing that you spend time, passion, energy, and you've competed in isn't worthy of being on here? So it reminds me of the affective. But anyway, you're you're dividing it up into those three ways. I think is really really helpful. And then whenever we can do what we can to kind of get inside the other person's experience. But I mean, I'm telling you, Lindsay, I would have missed it. I would have missed it if he wouldn't have hung around a bit, if he wouldn't have experienced that challenge. And I I, I won't spend more time on this, but there were so many areas where I just thought, oh my gosh, this was so illuminating. And it's just this challenge that we're we're experiencing but we think it's just related to AI, but it's related to so many other aspects of education, which makes this so hard. So speaking of another easy question to ask you, what are some ways that learning is currently being impacted by artificial intelligence? I know I just touched on a couple and you already have. I, I think, yeah, I think that's a perfect example because it sets up, you know, like learning is always, what can you produce? What can you do with it? What are the what are the skills or the ideas or the capacities that that knowing more, being able to do more, having more experiences with unlock for you? And I think one of the things that's really important with students and and learning is making sure that we're giving them that space. I mean, you gave them that space outside of the bounds of the normal classroom. And I feel like one of the advantages, just absolutely unbelievable kind of limitless, wide open spaces for us to think about as educators is that these tools can help ensure that we are creating those spaces more intentionally within the design of our classes. And what you can do is go to these AI tools and give them your lecture notes and say, how do I incorporate space for a student to connect to this topic in a meaningful way? And it can generate a case study. It can generate an example. It can generate a story like you've just shared here of, of this story, which unlocked for me a way of thinking about it. And I think that having this tool, if we as faculty are willing to kind of understand how learning works or how we can have the most potential impact with students in the limited sacred time we have together, face-to-face or online, whatever the modality is, these can help ensure that we are maximizing that as opposed to just hitting at those really low levels of the cognitive. I think even hitting at the high levels of the cognitive, if you're not addressing the student's lived experience or how they feel within the design of the learning experience, 
then you're, I mean, think about how we feel when we're told to do something and given absolutely no context. As professionals, we start pushing back. Well, why? Help me understand. Why am I supposed to do this work? You know, we as professionals typically don't just accept assignments. We push at them, but students don't know to do that. So I think this gives us the opportunity without taking up more of our time to be more intentional with the design of learning that really addresses the fact that students are complex people who like esports, <laughs> who have lives outside of the classroom, and who aren't necessarily motivated by the things that motivate us. I mean, a lot of students will say they're there to get a degree or they're there to become a particular profession, but that's not what gets them out of bed in the morning. You know, it's the fear or the hope of seeing some particular person or having an interaction. And for a lot of students, it is fear, you know, the fear of letting their families down, of failure. And I think the more we can take that into consideration as we're designing assignments, the more likely it is we're going to create assignments where students care about producing the thing themselves, the authentic product, as opposed to just checking off a box using an artificial intelligence tool or something like that. This does sort of get us to the next question, but I imagine we'll be dancing between teaching and learning for some time in our conversation now. But I'd like to have you explore what are some ways teaching is being impacted by AI and specific to what you just said, depending what day you catch me or depending on what day you might catch a colleague, sometimes it starts to feel, and I don't I don't use this analogy lightly, but it starts to feel a little bit like an arms race. And I take arms races very seriously <laughs> um, in terms of the generation I was born into. I don't, again, I'm not trying to make light of it, but just where you fight something with another thing and you fight it and, and, and that we would use the same kinds of, of tools to attempt to fight against students wanting to use the same kinds of tools. How are you thinking through that sort of wrestling? Does this occur to you if we catch you on a certain day? Does it ever start to feel that way or has it felt that way? Is this resonating at all? Yeah. I, and I think that's, it, it's an important question to ask. And I'll say, you know, when we think about how these tools are affecting faculty, I'm working in my position. I help faculty from across our institution. We've got I think 1,500 faculty from all different kinds of disciplines. And there's there's a lot of difference and unique perspectives on it. But one of the things that we're seeing again and again, oh, so we started designing this course in January and started trying to you know offer some support and engage faculty in conversations. And pretty early on, I would say around March, I started hearing like, oh, chat GPT, I'm done with that. I'm done with that conversation. Let's move on. Let's talk about something else. And it's it's... Absolutely understandable. And it led us to think about when we're trying to help faculty think about these tools and their impact on learning. The first thing we have to acknowledge is that this is a big transition and it sucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we we don't have the the luxury kind of like the the pandemic, you know, it's kind of forced on us as professionals. And because we have an obligation, just like with a new breakthrough in our disciplines, this new breakthrough in the technology that impacts teaching and learning we're responsible to learn it for taking our our job as professionals seriously. And I think it is is a real drag to have to add that onto our already busy overworked plates. And so the the big thing that we've focused on with faculty is stop and just acknowledge how you're feeling about the tools. Because we've seen, you know, early on, two pretty divided reactions. 
I'm going to stick my head in the sand and pretend like this is not happening and hope it goes away. And on the other hand, like more like the way I'm talking about, look at this amazing potential. These tools are going to change everything. And I think, you know, both, both responses are valid, but both responses are limited. We don't know a lot about these tools. We don't know how it's going to impact the future. And so one of our, our big approaches with faculty has been to kind of wherever you're at in the short term, it's kind of like the, the process of grief. You know, there's that denial and then the anger and then the bargaining. And then slowly you're moving into this kind of more accepting sort of phase. And so we've really tried to advocate for faculty to hold space for both of those reactions. In the short term, if it doesn't align with your workload and where you're at, ignore it. Do what you can to mitigate students cheating with it. Here's some strategies to help with that. But then also think about the long term. And in the long term, these tools, what they afford us, these capabilities, they're they're only going to grow. They're going to get more sophisticated. And we will have to deal with those. But I think giving faculty the space to have both of those things simultaneously has been the the kind of strongest approach that we've found to have any having the conversation about it. I know that we have both been around some time in higher education. And sometimes when I think about these conversations about artificial intelligence, if I wasn't reading as much, listening as much, trying to soak in everything I can as much, it could easily sound like, oh, well, they said this about the MOOCs and they said this about the learning management systems. And long, long ago, they said this about newspapers and printed words and that kind of thing. Are you running into that with your work where you're feeling people tired of that it's the next, it's the, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of it, where we were going to all have our clocks, um, the dates got all messed up. What was that? Oh, yeah. Y2K. <laughs> yes, there we go. People are screaming <laughs> out at their podcast players saying the answer right now. Yeah, Y2K. You know, because if you've, if you have been around long enough to have experienced the fear and the concern over things like that, that didn't end up coming to fruition to be as scary as the headlines would have had us believe at the time. How does this one feel different to you? Because I'm guessing it does <laughs> feel different. Yeah, to I think so. Um, that reminds me, I, I watched, I attended this amazing student-led conference that happened over the weekend a couple weeks ago. Students out of University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign and Stanford collaborated to create this AI education kind of, it was amazing. But one of the keynote speakers I will not pronounce his name correctly. It's Chris Dede, D-E-D-E. He's out of Harvard. He runs their AI institute, their NFS funded. I'm going to have to check all the details. <laughs> on fact check well, this. at least you knew what Y2K was. You got that going for you. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he was sharing, you know, his kind of research and his feeling about where we're at with this. And he cited the fact that the first academic article on artificial intelligence came out in 1971. Mm -hmm. And since then, he said, we've gone through about nine or 10 hype cycles where it's AI is coming. Everything is, they were predicting the end back in the 1970s of higher education and learning and everything as we know it. And I found that really helpful, I think, for contextualizing. There is absolutely a lot of hype right now about these things, but there's also there's also a lot that faculty need to, to reflect on in terms of the design of their assignments. One of our big goals with our AI efforts here at our institution, and I think broadly speaking, others who are leading these conversations at their institutions is just encouraging faculty to try these things out. There is a huge gap between hearing about these things and seeing them in action. 
And that would be, you know, that's the main outcome for this course is to have faculty really experiment or at least be open to experimenting with the tools and talking to their students. And those are the two pieces we hope everyone gets onto in sooner rather than later. And I think for faculty who we have a lot of colleagues right now who are rightly very concerned about the copyright infringements and the intellectual property issues in terms of how these things are being trained. Just about an hour ago, I got an update from The Atlantic about this database of 183,000 books that were kind of illegally gotten. And then they use this to train Meta and some of the other AI tools. And now you can search, The Atlantic offers a tool where you can search and see if the a book you wrote or a book you know of is is one of the one-sided. And uh, I forget the, the journalist doing most of it, Alex Reisner is the one publishing a lot in the Atlantic on this topic, the kind of intellectual property issues related to how these things have been trained and the, the, the copyrighted work of authors that have been taken by them. So I think those things are hugely important, but I think it's also a separate issue about what these tools can do in terms of generating responses, Mm -hmm. creating writing and things like that. So I, I also am helping faculty try to separate those two issues. They're they're both important, but our approach to them needs to be a little bit different. What you're sharing is reminding me so much of how hard this can be. I can hear the empathy in your voice and the way that you're speaking with such care and nuance. I remember I had the honor of talking a couple times to Mike Wesh, and Mike Wesh, for people not familiar with that name, one of the things he's really well known for there are are many people who have gone this same route is to try new things. And that seems so trite, but he literally, he has documented his trying to learn how to do headstands and succeeding by the way at doing headstands and the beautiful piece of audio work, which I'm so sad there was only ever one episode of to date of his life 101 podcast where he has students teach him how to do things and sort of reteach him how to dance. And I mean, it's a beautiful audio story that had three different lessons that he was having students teach him how to do and including jumping across buildings, which I always think like, I don't think I'm ever going to have a student teach me to jump across a building but we're probably not going to get to cover my fear of heights with students for all the things they have to teach me. But so I, anyway, I think that trying to get in touch with that playful spirit, that curiosity, and maybe all of us have gotten a little stuck in in certain areas. And so you're encouraging us to do that. And one way you might encourage us even more is to tell us a little bit about what you have found with how students are currently using artificial intelligence. Absolutely. So we at our institution in early March, late February, somewhere in the spring semester, we created a survey and sent it out all over the place. We got about 600 undergraduate student responses from all over the institution, all kinds of majors. And we asked them, have you used these tools? Do you know someone who's used these tools? How are they using these tools? How are, you know, so how are you using them? How are you feeling about them? And we also, you know, looked at our faculty on a much smaller kind of sample size. And we're seeing a lot of of data along those lines come in from from these courses that we've been offering. But what we're finding that's kind of surprising, I think, for a lot of faculty when we share it with them, is that students are almost exactly at the same place faculty are in terms of their skepticism and anxiety about these tools. A lot of them are are very worried that their peers are going to use these tools to cheat and get ahead. They're worried about what the future of their professions are going to look like. Myself and my colleague, D.L. Wiley, have been doing 
a lot of class sessions with our communications and journalism students with some of our faculty in there to talk about how AI tools might impact that profession specifically and in particular. But there's a lot, I think, that that faculty are opening up on it because they're seeing students are not just jumping both feet in to use these things to cheat, or at least that's when they're they're sharing through these surveys and, and focus groups and stuff that we've been doing with them, they are concerned about the use of the tools. They all know people who are using them to cheat. Very few or a smaller number are admitting to using the tools in inappropriate ways. But the big thing is that students are absolutely as sort of flabbergasted by these things and anxious about how it's going to impact not just their educational experience in higher ed, but also their lives in terms of their their professions. And I think that that's a piece where for faculty who are struggling with the ethics, with the idea of these tools, with the all the newness that this transition is kind of pushing us into, for those who are able to focus on their students, we're seeing a lot more growth and open-mindedness because they're taking that empathetic posture towards their students and asking them more about what they need to learn, what they need to know. And that's been helpful to see that there's not a huge divide where the students are just trying to figure out how to cheat the system and faculty are trying to police the system. So I think that that's been really helpful to open up that conversation and see that most students are cautious about these just as most faculty are. And what are you seeing for yourself or for fellow colleagues as far as how you are or they are making use of artificial intelligence? So last semester, I taught a playwriting workshop for the Department of Theater here at our our institution at Auburn. And it was interesting. I was asking these students, I had a group of about 15, just wonderful, dynamic, mostly theater majors. There were a few from different disciplines, engineering and English. So early on in the semester, I asked if they had heard of it. None of them had. Around the mid-semester point, we started using ChatGPT in class to create some basic scripts. And we started showing how changing different aspects of the formula of the prompt would generate different dialogue. And that's something that ChatGPT is the one that I was using anyways at the time. It was pretty good at writing dramatic dialogue if you were able to give it the prompt with the right motivation and subtext and incorporating kind of all the nuances, I guess, in the prompt itself. We also tried it for poetry and nonfiction and fiction, some of the other genres of creative writing, and it was absolutely disastrous. So I feel like <laughs> the poets are safe for sure. Um, but it's it's interesting, you know, when we teach playwriting, the first lessons are playwriting is formulaic. Aristotle in the Poetics pulled out the formula 2000 years ago, and not much has changed beyond the kind of intentional skewing of the formula, theater of the absurd, and some of the other 20th century experimental artists kind of push it, but they react to the formula that exists. And I think what these generators are showing us about writing, language is mathematical, it's predictable, it's formulaic, there's patterns, and the more sophisticated the math gets in combining these tokens or you know ideas, the more sophisticated the writing appears. It's not actual it's not having ideas. It's not innovative. It's not creative. And I think it helps us move the conversation forward on, well, what is creativity? What is innovation? If not the appearance of it in sophisticated sounding text, how do we understand it? And I really love that kind of more philosophical sort of idea. In uh, this course that we've designed, one of the really fun activities, I think it's fun. It's one of my favorites. And 
the looking to the future of AI. We have folks complete what we call a taxonomy of sentience. So we give a couple different kind of riffing off of Bloom's taxonomy of cognition, understand, remember, critique. We talk about this truly advanced kind of sentient activity. So having a sense of humor, making moral judgments, experiencing boredom, I think was one of them where, you know, it's not a super scientific tool that we've put together, but it's meant to sort of help us think about the things that aren't replaceable. They're, they're mimicable. Mm-hmm. You can write prompts that get it to mimic or, or put on like it can ha- experience these higher order sentient kind of activities, but they can't truly replicate it. And I think that that helps us understand where our value is as humans and certainly as teachers and learners. In my experimentations, I'm so echoing the sense of humor. I just have not found uh, rich sources of humor from artificial intelligence. And I mentioned this on the podcast a few months ago when I read Ross Gay's book, Inciting Joy. Ross Gay, for those listening, is a a spoken word poet and English professor. And I do think, I do concur that the poets are safe for some time to come because it is really that novelty that, that... can only come from the human mind. So anything else that you're thinking of before we get to the recommendation segment about what's coming in the future and the kinds of things we want to be aware of in the continued emergence of artificial intelligence? Yeah, I mean, dovetailing off of that, that what we're just talking about, this idea that AIs, they're not really good at artistic creation. They're not very good at jokes, if you ask me to tell you a joke or whatever. (laughs) But I think, you know, that's not really what's important. What's important is that it can't laugh at my jokes. There's no real connection there. And I think what we're seeing, certainly in our conversations, is the greater importance on true connection, being with people. If we can't trust what we see anymore online, if we can't trust what we hear with all these AI sound creators, and they're going to be able to generate our images at some point, what it's going to do is push more emphasis and credibility into the interactions and the connections we have with each other. So I think face-to-face learning will become even more important in certain ways and in certain kinds of contexts. So I feel like that's a place where it's worth doing some thinking. The other piece, you know, assessment, course design, those aspects of designing a course that are not just your content expertise, but rather how do you create a lesson plan? How do you visually design your slide decks? How do you make sure that the test questions are pitched at the right level of Bloom's cognitive taxonomy? I think those things are gonna be really streamlined. I think all faculty are gonna be lifted by the capabilities of these tools to create more meaningful activities, assessments, and questions to help students, to help ensure that what they teach is what they're testing students on and vice versa. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot, of, a lot of interest on our campus about using AI to create multiple versions of test questions and more sophisticated test banks. We have a, a testing center here. We were talking with um, Emily Camp, who, who manages that she was saying a lot of these prometric testing, SATs and ACTs, they're doing more. They said SAT is going to a fully online version now. So students will bring their own laptops into a moderated space, if I understood correctly what she was saying. And then each test will be generated to, to each individual. So everyone will have a different kind of test and they'll be graded immediately. So I think there's a lot of innovation that'll happen there, certainly in the short term. 
But then long term, you know, I'm really excited about the possibilities of these tools in terms of their helping faculty redesign the curriculum. So how students progress through the pathway of a major, and especially how they progress through the constellation of different courses that they teach or take any given semester. And so I'm imagining like using these AI tools to look at a student's individual, which class did they have at what level with which teacher and pulling content from that to generate really individualized assessments or reflective interviews or questions. I think there's a lot of potential there to tailor learning to individual students, which I mean, that. I, I think that's really exciting because then you you have a better system that's going to be a lot more equitable, a lot more inclusive, and offer a lot more pathways for different kinds of people to succeed in ways that right now are big, blunt edge sort of assessment practices and and pathways through the curriculum don't really allow for. Oh, it's so fascinating, Lindsay. And I'm I'm cracking up at myself. I have a what could best be described as a ridiculous legalism around the recommendations, and I don't recommend something I have not actually finished. So I have not finished the course, but this is foreshadowing for listeners that I absolutely will be recommending the Teaching with AI course in the future. So uh, if this conversation didn't get you thinking uh, to go check it out. I hope you'll I, th- I hope you will and then know that there's more to come because I'm so looking forward to finishing, but it really did have so many aspects. I was blown away at the number of people that worked on this with you. That is quite a both large list and diverse list in every sense of the word. And it, it just all the care and effort and expertise and thoughtfulness and creativity is so evident with the the two modules I've gone through so far. I'm really, really enjoying it and excited to earn my badges along the way. <laughs> yeah, so uh, know that that's coming. I'd be honored listeners. to deliver <laughs> your digital badge in person someday. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How would that happen when I hold my phone up? <laughs> Probably. We will find a 3D printer and create oh, our own. I like that idea a lot. <laughs> I like that idea. So I am going to transition us now to the recommendation segment, although I know this conversation could t- continue for so much longer. I have three recommendations I wanted to quickly make. All of them have something to do with language, although maybe not necessarily always. In each case, the language related to the large language models. The first one is I get so much out of Josh Eiler's work, and Josh Eiler linked to an inside higher ed story that he says is well worth reading 100% of the time if Josh Eiler tells me and everyone else that something's worth reading it always is but one of the things he points and I will link to that by the way I'll link to I'm not even going to bother linking to his tweet because tweets are not as accessible as they used to be, but I will link to the inside higher ed piece that he was referring to. But in his tweet, he says that the studies mentioned that in this story that I'll be linking to represent progress, but he pushes back a little bit on language. And so my first language-related theme relates to what Josh admonishes us and encourages us to change our habits with. He says, I wish our higher ed media would stop using, quote, achievement gaps and switch to equity gaps or opportunity gaps in order to use an asset-based lens to talk about performance. So again, I'm going to be linking to the Inside Higher Ed story, with Josh, which Josh says is worth a read, and also encouraging all of us to be adopting the language of equity gaps or opportunity gaps. And I recently had on the podcast 
Sarah Silverman. I hope you had a chance to listen to that. If you haven't, it's a great listen. But she spoke about her experience and and gave us an introduction to neurodiversity. And someone on one of the social media had asked about her thoughts on person-first language. And she corresponded with that person and linked to an article that she recommended for further discussion. It's by Emily, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Ladau, L-A-D-A-U. And this is titled, Why Person First Language Doesn't Always Put the Person First. So Sarah Silverman said, in terms of the discussion of person first language, this to her is a really good entry point for people that are asking those same kinds of questions. And not not to oversimplify it, but ultimately what she said was we should ask people how they would most like to be referred to, and that's always going to be the best. And my last recommendation is from Canada, all of Canada, (laughs) from the Canadian government, a guide on the use of generative artificial intelligence. And this was just to me, I really like pieces where you can come in and and get some definitions, what are some of the challenges and concerns, what is the Canadian government recommending in terms of our approaches, what are their policy considerations and best practices, and some frequently asked questions. It's just a really brief read. I mean, it's amazing how much they're able to cover in a relatively short guide, and I think it's worth a read. So those are my language-related recommendations. And Lindsay, I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. All right. So I have been waiting for this moment to recommend this thing on your podcast for several years. I, I don't wait. think anybody else has recommended yet, but I'm going to recommend somebody who's very close to you does a podcast. So your husband, Dave Stahoviak, leads the Coaching for Leaders podcast. And that, no offense, is my favorite podcast. Yours is second. Ah. And the reason is not because of the, the quality or anything, both amazing. <laughs> But because I learned so much from the lens of looking at teaching and learning through the lens of leadership, Mm. certainly as I've moved into more of an administrative role in my own institution, managing people, managing projects, those things have come up a lot more. But there are so many episodes and so many guests where he has, you know, unpacked things like, I remember Amishi Jaha was on last year when I was teaching a learning how to learn course for our honors college and her book, what was it? Peak Mind, I think, mm. that on my bookshelf now, was about the science of attention. We had had some topic planned that day, but I made them all stop. And we listened to the first half hour of that podcast. And then we started discussing how attention is such an important resource and the most important kind of first step to, to learning. But I think there's there's so many things that I've learned from that podcast that I really wanted to take a moment and both recommend it, but also recommend that you two collaborate on something like a coaching for leaders and education Mm -hmm. or episode. But I think it's just, it's really helpful to think about, you know, at the beginning, you asked me, what is learning? Learning is change Mm -hmm. and leadership. The definition that that uh, they use on that podcast is about leading change. You manage people, you lead change. And I think that teaching so much of what great teachers do is really employ the science and the the techniques of leadership as opposed to just being excellent at their their expertise. So I really recommend that. And in particular, I would recommend the the episodes with David Hutchins, mm. who is an expert on storytelling. And I think using stories more intentionally in our teaching 
is such an important way to bring our full selves into the classroom, which I think is something that a lot of us are really hesitant to do. It's it's scary. It's difficult. But I think the faculty that we work with, when we use some of those techniques, we have this leadership story deck and we do story circles and things like that. It's really transformative once they start thinking about their experience in terms of stories or framing their lectures through a narrative format as opposed to just chronology or content or something like that. So those those would be my recommendations. I am cracking up so much. I do believe you are the first person to ever recommend it. And not only have you recommended it and then some specific episodes, which I'll link to those as well around David Hutchins. I am picturing Dave's face right now. He's not a told I told you so kind of person. He's just not. But but like he has after he interviewed Amishi, he forwarded her contact like this. You absolutely should have this person. And this is years ago. And I have not followed up. I do have a very long list of prospective guests that I constantly feel like I'm not kind to myself. It's just impossible to keep up with how many amazing people. But so I, I should definitely take this as a as another sign. I should get invite her and see if she would like to come on the show. And then we were talking about storytelling in the university where I work. And Dave was really recommending that that story deck specifically, that that might be a good way to begin some meetings and stuff and just continue to grow our skills individually and collectively. So thank you for these wonderful recommendations. And I'm getting such a kick out of picturing his face right now. He's got a smile on. He's happy. And well, yeah. tell him he has a big fan yeah, down I in totally, Auburn, Alabama. I totally will. He has the opposite thing happen to him where I have apparently some big fans over there in his in his neck of the woods too. So it's really, really fun. But yes, I love I've it. heard you come up several times with his his guests. <laughs> It's only fair. <laughs> well, thank you so much for not just this conversation, but you and I have known each other for a while now, and I just feel very edified by our relationship. Cannot wait to dive back in the course, get my badges, all of the things, and I can't wait for other people to discover it as well. And just thank you so much for your generosity and being here today and always. It is really a professional dream of mine to be on this podcast. So I am absolutely thrilled to get to talk to you today. Oh, and I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks once again to Lindsay Dukopoulos for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Priest. Thanks so much for listening. And if you've yet to sign up for the email list, the email update from Teaching in Higher Ed, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. That way you'll receive each week in your inbox, the most recent episodes, show notes, as well as some other resources that don't show up in the regular show notes. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.